Hello, everyone. Welcome to Better Health While Aging, a podcast that gives you strategies and information about improving the health and well-being of older adults. We discuss common health problems that affect people over age 60, the best ways to prevent and manage those problems, and we also often address common concerns and dilemmas that come up with aging parents and other older loved ones, like what to do if you're worried about falls or safety or memory, or even the quality of an older person's health care. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. In today's episode, we are going to be talking about a legal tool that often becomes critically important when it comes to helping older adults with certain late-life challenges, and that is the durable general power of attorney. Specifically, we're going to be talking about some relatively simple things that can be done to reduce the risk that someone could abuse the authority conferred by a power of attorney document. We have a very special guest here to discuss this with us today. My guest is David Godfrey, JD. He is a senior attorney on the staff of the American Bar Association Commission on Law and Aging. And in 2018, he authored an issue brief titled, Drafting Advanced Planning Documents to Reduce the Risk of Abuse or Exploitation. He also works closely with the National Center on Law and Elder Rights to create materials that can help practicing attorneys better assist older adults and families with legal concerns. As you may know, experts do recommend that every older adult complete a durable general power of attorney. It's considered a foundational planning document for reasons that we'll be reviewing in this episode. So every older person needs one, and it is good to draft it in such a way that it helps protect older people from some of the problems that we know can sometimes come up with this legal tool. So I'm really delighted to have David Godfrey here with us today to tell us more about this really important legal tool and how POA documents can be drafted to maximize their ability to help and minimize their ability to be used inappropriately. David, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Before we go into the details of the power of attorney document and how we can draft them better, I would love for you to tell us a little bit more about you and the organizations you work for and with. So how did you become interested in elder law and how did you come to work for the American Bar Association Commission on Law and Aging? The summer between my first year and second year of law school, I did some volunteer work with the local legal aid program. And I found two things that summer. Number one, I fell in love with working with older, older clients. We had an attorney in the office who was focused on providing free legal assistance to persons age 60 and over. And the other thing I learned was that I didn't want to practice family law. Uh, mm. Just too many personal and family dramas and traumas going on there. From that, I actually, the, the attorney that I worked with that summer actually recommended me for a job when I was finishing law school. Uh, I worked for a nonprofit foundation and ran a senior fo focused legal aid program for about a decade. Uh, and then was hired here at the American Bar Association Commission on Law and Aging about 10 years ago. We do research and training and policy work on issues in law and aging. Can you give us a few examples of the kinds of um, issues that the ABA Commission works on? We do a, a lot of work on healthcare decision making, including capacity and the state specific laws on healthcare decision making and advanced care planning. We do a lot of work on trying to improve uh, adult guardianship, including looking at the alternatives to guardianship. And all of that's done under the umbrella of what are the risks of abuse, neglect, and exploitation in all of this work. Great. Well, I don't know that I had uh, been very familiar with the Commission on Law and Aging until a few years ago when I started researching issues related to um, capacity, decision-making capacity, because this comes up so often in my line of work, the question of whether an older person is making good decisions, good enough decisions, whether they should be allowed to continue to make decisions that are making other people uncomfortable, like living in their home despite safety issues or refusing to go to the doctor when their family thinks they should. So I did some research at that time. 
Yeah, we've published three handbooks on decision-making capacity, uh, one aimed at lawyers, uh, one specifically for psychologists, and a desk book for judges. I, and those have been very widely were used in professional areas. The one for lawyers really has a broader audience, and each of them is unique and has cover slightly different materials. They're about a dozen years old. We're actually looking right now at starting a process of updating the lawyer's handbook on capacity and hope to get that done in the next year or so. Yes. Well, that was my first exposure to the Commission on Law and Aging was finding those resources. And I was just impressed by the depth and the understanding of the issues. So now let's talk about power of attorney uh, documents. Maybe you can um, start by explaining to our audience, just briefly reviewing, what is the durable general power of attorney and why do we generally recommend that everybody have one? A general durable power of attorney is a document that appoints an agent basically to transact business on behalf of the person who appointed them. By durable, it's, it's written in such a way that it survives as long as the person is alive. Uh, under traditional common law, a power of attorney became incapacitated when the person became incapacitated. A durable power of attorney that doesn't lose its effectiveness should the person lose their capacity is actually a creation of modern law. Uh, something that's come out over the last 50 or 100 years. Mm -hmm. And they're recognized in virtually every state. The powers that are granted in a power of attorney are determined based on the terms of the document and based on state law. Uh, and the limitations on what can be done is also based on the terms of the document and some limitations based on state law. Mm. So maybe when it comes to older adults, what are some practical examples of when a durable general power of attorney is necessary for the benefit of the older person? Collecting income and getting it deposited into bank accounts, paying bills, making fundamental decisions. Uh, if someone's no longer able to drive or unlikely to be able to drive again, can someone sell their car with a general durable power of attorney? Uh, then that gives the agent the authority to transact that business and, and do things like take care of cars and such. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about an older person becoming incapacitated, I mean, I have my thoughts on what are common causes for that, but maybe you can tell me from your perspective on the commission what you find are the, the common reasons that older adults either want or need somebody else to transact that business. Because I, I guess sometimes they could want it even if they're not incapacitated, right? Uh, yeah. A, sometimes you're traveling, you're away, or your other your, your mind is otherwise occupied, and it's really handy to be able to have someone that can transact business on your behalf. But we're also all only one illness or injury away from needing help with managing our affairs and managing our finances. And those are things that can happen suddenly and unexpectedly. And once they've happened, it can be too late to make arrangements, legal arrangements for things to be managed uh, without having to go into the court process, which can be time consuming and expensive. So I guess, you know, car accidents, stroke, you know, there are a variety yeah. of sudden uh, accidents or illnesses yeah. that can yeah make people uh, very ill and at least uh, temporarily unable to transact their business, possibly permanently. And, and slower progressive illnesses, the onset of dementia, if someone's experiencing uh, changes in memory and cognitive ability, that's the time to, if you haven't already done it, to make sure that you get planning in place so that as your ability to make decisions and manage your affairs declines, you've put in place the plan so that you know who's managing your affairs. And that person has some idea of how you want to go about doing it, what your values are, what your preferences are, what your beliefs are. If we plan for it, I call it planning for incapacity, uh, then we have more control over it versus crisis planning where an illness or an injury has happened suddenly can make it it can be much easier if we've planned for it in advance. 
Right, right. Yeah, I feel like uh, maybe it's my perspective within healthcare, but I feel like there's been a lot of focus on getting people to address their healthcare advanced directives, which of course I, I support. And uh, I think in just about every state, there is a mechanism where even if you haven't completed a document, your family is allowed to make at least, you know, really important decisions on your behalf if you're critically ill. But I think a lot of people don't realize that there's no, generally no similar mechanism allowing your family to step in and pay your bills. Correct. And yeah, and it, it happens. I've I, I've worked with clients who had a sudden illness, and it can happen at any age. I really can. Yes, that's true. Yeah. So I occasionally get people posting comments on my website that their older parents, you know, had a stroke or something, and how can we pay the bills? And really, I, I think if there's no, hasn't been a document created, then they, they essentially have to go to court, right? And petition for the... Yeah, it depends, depends on what income and what assets you're working with. Social Security has an alternative called representative payee that doesn't require a court process, but it only uh, allows someone to receive and manage Social Security retirement benefits. Uh, some other, most government pensions, but you have a similar system, but very few private pensions do. And it doesn't give you access to manage or pay the bills with retirement savings, uh, general savings, the things that you know, people save all of their life so that they can take care of themselves when they need it. And if when you need it, nobody has access to it, then it makes it really difficult. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so that durable general power of attorney enables some trusted person to step in and transact business on your behalf should you either be uh, suddenly injured or disabled or should you develop a progressive mental disability, such as a problem with memory or thinking like Alzheimer's or another form of dementia. So super important. And we are you know, talking about protections because this is a powerful document that, that can be exploited or abused. So can you tell us a little bit more about what we know about that? Yeah, the and the the vast majority of the time, the agent on a power of attorney does the best they can within their knowledge and abilities. But they can also become very powerful tools because they can be written very broadly and give the person access, give the agent access to money and property and the ability to sell it, transfer it, mortgage it. And if the agent starts to abuse it, the money gets lost, it gets taken, it gets stolen. And it doesn't happen all the time or even often, but when it happens, it can be devastating. So, so what led the Commission on Law and Aging to decide to research this question of um, drafting better protections? I really, we've been looking at it for a long time. We do a lot of work on elder abuse, neglect, and financial exploitation. And as we look at each issue, whether it's a power of attorney or an advanced health care directive, we always look at it through this lens of, is there something we can do to make this safer? Can we mm -hmm. draft in safeguards, oversight, accountability, so that we can try to we, it's impossible to eliminate the risk, but can we reduce or minimize the risk? Mm -hmm. No. Well, I certainly, you know, hear people complaining uh, about the actions of someone who yeah. is the power of attorney or expressing uh, concerns. You were sort of mentioning, you know, drama in family law. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I mean, I think we disproportionately, I disproportionately hear about the problem situations, right? No, people are unlikely to, to write online, you know, post in a support group online or, or write on my site if everything's fine. So, uh, so I was really glad to come across your, your issue brief. So maybe you can take us through what uh, you and your colleagues concluded were some sensible precautions that could be included. The first, really the first starting point is careful selection of the agent. Mm. Um, not just taking, not, not resorting to the defaults of the oldest child or the child that lives nearest, but actually asking some questions of, is this person prepared to be a reliable agent? Are they available? Are they trustworthy? Do they have minimal risk factors in their life? 
because if you're concerned about whether the person is going to be able to do the right thing up front, the better thing to do is to look for another agent. All too often, the, we do, you know, nobody bothered to ask, or if they asked, they overlooked the risk factors that were there. Uh, so selection of a reliable, trustworthy agent up front is the first step. And and I think on your the website of the Commission for Law and Aging, there's a tool that can be used to help select an agent, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. So we can find that and link to it in the show notes. Okay, so... So first, you know, careful selection of the uh, agent, and uh, what else? I encouraged third-party accounting uh, back 20 years ago when I started out in the legal aid program and we started doing powers of attorney for clients. I drafted into it just a very simple clause that the agent needed to keep complete records. A, that's important for the agent, and it's important if there's ever a question and B, to make those records available. And we'd name who the records should be made available to is usually siblings or other family members. Try to find someone who's trustworthy. That transparency and oversight does two things. It minimizes the friction between family members and it creates a degree of oversight. Somebody else is looking at the bank statements or the credit card statements. And if something's amiss, they're going to, they should see it. Or if the records they're getting are incomplete and they ask about it and they get a defensiveness of, oh, I'm not going to bother to tell you about that, it raises a red flag that maybe there's something that, they, that they're trying to hide. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I love that idea in part because, you know, I have seen so many siblings complaining that they, that the, the person, the sibling who's the power of attorney is not revealing enough about what they're doing. Now, sometimes that power of attorney sibling says, well, it's because they have so many complaints and what I'm doing is already so hard and stressful. And uh, I, you know, I'm just trying to, to do the things that, that I'm doing. But uh, one question I had for you is when there is a third party accounting, if someone reviewing it has concerns and feels like they're not, you know, the transactions aren't all accounted for or something like that, what recourse do they have to then you know, or let's say the, 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 the sibling actually isn't, the power of attorney isn't complying with the need for third-party accounting. My first recommendation is always that the family get together with a trusted facilitator and talk through what's going on. The legal solutions are only going to drive deeper wedges into the family relationship. And as multiple people have pointed out to me over the years, the family survives the death of the patient or the death of the older adults. And if we can try to encourage that family to develop trust and understanding and healing, the family does better. Failing that, the the resort is usually going into the court system. Uh, One of the fastest growing areas of probate litigation is actually litigating this issue before the person dies. Siblings, trying to find siblings or other family members, going into court seeking an accounting for the money. Where did the money go? What's happening with it? And that's time consuming and costly, uh, but it's certainly an available option. The powers of attorney that I was drafting 20 years ago actually included a clause that authorized the court to demand an accounting from the agent. And uh, so if the judge was sitting there going, gee, I don't know whether the power of attorney law tells me I can do this or not, the document did. The document's essentially an agency agreement or a contract between individuals and the terms of that can be anything that's legal and enforceable. And we would actually draft into the document to allow a judge to order the, inf- the accountability provisions. And if a judge sees somebody that's failing to do that, then it's going to raise red flags for the judge of, why don't you want to account for the money? So it sounds like by, by people drafting the power of attorney in the first place to say that this third-party accounting is required, you're already sidestepping something that you've seen generate legal action, which is people pursuing legal action just to get the accounting yeah. in the first place. And then that transparency will, the, the expectation of transparency from the get-go will probably put people on their better behavior. 
for those few who are considering not being on their better behavior. <laughs> the 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 next suggestion that we have is people for low to middle income families frequently the largest single asset is their home and it's the asset that in my experience people are most concerned about they wanted to hang on to their home we started drafting into powers of attorney that the sale of the home required a second signature it's a a real inconvenience to require two signatures to pay the water bill but if we're selling a home or mortgage a home, mortgaging a home or some other large or significant asset asking for a second signature. So you've got a little check and balance. It doesn't mean the two people can't get together and conspire to do bad things, but it's harder to get two people to agree to do, to, to financially exploit someone than it is for a single person to do it alone. And it's, it's fairly simple for a lawyer to draft that type of language into a power of attorney where certain transactions such as the sale of a home or the mortgaging of a home would require a second signature and name who that second person would be. Great. That sounds like a really good idea. Yes. So uh, next suggestion. For the last few years that I was in the legal aid program, I had the pleasure of serving on a multidisciplinary elder abuse team and saw a lot of frustration on behalf of adult protective services and law enforcement where they'd see a durable power of attorney that was being used to financially exploit, to steal someone's money and property. And in order to revoke that power of attorney, they had to go to court and get a court order. And that took any place from four or five days to sometimes a couple of months. And by the time they got that court order, the damage had been done and it was hard to undo. So we started drafting into powers of attorney the authority to revoke and naming who had the authority to do that. Mm. This is a tremendously powerful power to put in there, and you really need to trust the judgment of the person who's going to revoke the agency agreement, the power of attorney on behalf of the grantor, but it can stop the damage faster, and it was something that we started doing, and I, I think it could make a real difference. Mm-hmm. And then for that, um, granting the power to revoke, do you generally recommend that be given to someone else in the family, or is it possible to sort of identify some kind of professional? It could be done either way. Depends on the family dynamics and who you trust or and what professionals are available, but it, it could be done for, for either. And then if the power of attorney is revoked, who then becomes power of attorney? Some powers of attorney have a backup or a second agent named in them. It's actually something we encourage people to do is name a first agent, name a backup. Sometimes you name a second backup. Otherwise, you can run into a situation where the document is revoked and there's no one able to manage the money or finances or personal decisions. And that can result in needing to go to guardianship, conservatorship court. Right. Okay. So granting the power to revoke, but being very thoughtful about who would be the revoker. And then I love that you brought that up, that people should often have an alternate and possibly a second alternate as well. So I think we've gone, I think your, your, your brief had six suggestions and we've gone through four of them. The next one is gifting. And a, a lot of powers of attorney have just a standard gifting language that's actually based on the federal estate and gift tax provisions, which is actually kind of unusual because less than 5% of Americans will ever have a liability for estate and gift tax. It's a, and the number is shrinking. Every time we change the tax laws, we raise the dollar amounts and reduce the number of people that a state and gift tax will ever apply to. And yet gifts can be a, a huge issue. Uh, a, they're a way that money and property gets exploited or stolen out of the estate. They're also a factor if the person's 
money runs out and you go to apply for Medicaid, Medicaid looks at all gifts back for five years. By federal law, they're supposed to look back for five years at gifts, and it can create problems with Medicaid eligibility. So we encourage carefully defining any gifting power and limiting gifting power to, to rather than leaving it very broad. Is there really any good reason to let your agent give gifts? For high net worth individuals, it's part of comprehensive estate and gift tax planning. A lot of individuals have a lifelong pattern of charitable giving and they want that to be continued. If you're doing that, you still need to keep in the back of your mind, are we going to run out of money and need to apply for Medicaid or Medi-Cal or, or, or a program like that, or even veterans benefits? And if so, what's the impact of these gifts going to be? Yeah, because I've been kind of thinking that ideally the agent is using the affairs to support the older person's needs, but it's true that um, some people might have uh, more than they need. And then I, I think the sixth one you had that I saw on the list was uh, limiting the powers yeah. in the document. Can you speak to that for a moment? Yeah, I and I, this was something that I started doing because of things that I saw happening. Uh, changing beneficiaries on life insurance policies, uh, adding names to bank accounts or investment accounts that created a right of survivorship. And we started asking people, what do you want your agent to be able to do or not do? And started drafting those clauses so that the power limitations were, were there and they were reasonable. There are times when you need to assign a beneficiary on a life insurance policy, uh, Medicaid or Medi-Cal estate planning sometimes when you're, when you're structuring the assets in a Medi-Cal or Medicaid application, you need to prepay a funeral. Uh, but you can draft the language so that it allows for that, but it doesn't allow for the life insurance to be arbitrarily change the beneficiary to, to, to someone that can significantly change what the plan, what the intention of the person was originally. Mm -hmm. I guess the other possibility would be to um, make some of those powers require the the second signature. Yeah. Right. I don't know enough about what you know those transactions <laughs> to really know yeah. which would seem better entirely limited or require a second signature. And I imagine a lot of people considering drafting their durable power of attorney or revising it, right? Because sometimes people have one that they did decades ago with an attorney and, and it seems like a good idea to, to review and revise it periodically. So how do people get help sort of bringing in all these um, extra protections so that the, their document works better for them? Yeah, there are about 20 states that have a statutory durable power of attorney form. California is one of them. Uh, and those forms will allow either an opt-in or an opt-out for various powers. And if someone is using that standard form, we encourage them to read it, to think about it. Is this something I really want my agent to do? And if not, opt out of that power or, or, uh, or not opt into it, depending on how the form is ordered, whether you whether you're saying, yes, I want this, or no, I don't want this. But to limit that, if you're making custom changes and a lot of the custom clauses that we're talking about really are something that an attorney needs to do, but it's not tremendously complicated legal work. It, it doesn't have to be terribly expensive to do. And if you spend a few hundred dollars getting it done and done right, but it saves thousands of dollars or tens of thousands of dollars in grief on down the road, it was money well spent. Right, right. So for instance, for the, the statutory forms in certain states like California, I don't have a California form right in front of me, but I think third-party accounting is not usually included. Actually, yeah. I'm quite sure yeah. it's not because <laughs> I've seen them. But you could go to an attorney and ask them to add that. Certainly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Do you know if some of these, um, some states are now offering templates or does the American Bar Association offer any templated language to, you know, not necessarily for people to add it in on their own, but for them to at least be able to check that their attorney 
is adding in something that's in line with your suggestions? Yeah. Power of attorney law is a, a state to state thing. There's mm-hmm. 50 different laws out there. So what you, what you have as a, a statutory construct is something you have to look at on a state by state basis. In the issue brief that we did for the National Center on Law and Elder Rights, there were some suggested language for some of these things, but it's also something that an attorney would need to look at in light of the statutory law in that state and the case law in the state that the person is creating the document in to make sure that the wording was would stand up if it were challenged. And that's something that really requires the skill of an attorney to do customizations on. Because there are 50 different states and 50 different statutes and 50 different sets of case law, it's really difficult for us to say, here it is, it'll work every place or it'll work on all of these places. It's just something that we're not able to do. Right. So for people who maybe have limited income who want help with this, can their local uh, area agency on aging point them to some more affordable legal assistance to get this done? The area agencies on aging receive under the Federal Older Americans Act, or in some states it's the state unit on aging because some states don't have area agencies on aging, they just have a state unit on aging, receives funding under the Older Americans Act to provide legal assistance to low-income or otherwise at-risk seniors. Uh, That legal assistance is provided for free. And yeah, you'd contact the Area Agency on Aging or the State Unit on Aging. And frequently, the local Senior Citizen Center or the local Meals on Wheels program will tell you how to contact the people that, that do that sort of stuff. About 80% of that funding flows through the Legal Service Corporation funded civil legal aid programs, and those programs cover virtually the entire country. Uh, So there is some legal aid does some of this work, and there are pro bono volunteers that do this type of work. Uh, In the program that I ran prior to coming to the ABA, a couple of times a year, I would gather a half a dozen pro bono volunteers, and we'd go to either an income-based senior housing community or a senior citizen center, and we'd set up and run a clinic afternoon uh, where anyone could walk in the door and we'd be able to help them with this type of very meaningful but relatively basic planning free of charge. And those programs are tremendous. And for, for, for an attorney who's doing pro bono service, they're also nice because they're limited in scope. You're not taking on the divorce case that might be finished in 90 days, but might take two years. You're taking on creating a power of attorney for someone that is going to be finished within an hour, maybe two hours time. It's a nice defined scope project, and it was a great way for us to work with pro bono volunteers. Yeah, well, that's a great resource for people to know about, you know, to kind of look for available um, options near them, either through legal aid or see if there are any of these kinds of projects where pro bono attorneys are, are offering that kind of assistance to certain communities. And now for these, um, you, you published your issue brief just a year ago. I think. I think it was April of 2018. So for these additional suggestions you have, do you know if any of them are currently in common use? I, I felt like, a, I mean, I've heard, you know, select your agent carefully, but that a lot of the others I didn't know about, but also I'm not, I'm not an attorney. <laughs> and so I was just wondering, is this still like the very leading edge or is this starting to become more common anywhere as far as you know? It is leading edge. I'll say it's becoming more common. I had uh, an email exchanged earlier this week with someone who's working on uh, updating a power of attorney law in, in a state out in the middle of the country who's actually looking at trying to draft some of these cl- some of these provisions into their state statute. So the the states are starting to look at it because there's been a a growing awareness over the last 10 years of abuse, neglect, and exploitation of older adults. Uh, The Elder Justice Coordinating Council was put together a few years ago and brings together various federal agencies to pool resources on these issues. 
and there's been a lot more awareness of the issue of elder abuse and it's resulted in looking for what can we do to reduce the risks and and to make intervention when it's necessary faster and more efficient because uh, you were saying that uh that right now if these protections are not drafted especially the power to revoke then it's often a very i guess labor intensive process of i'm not even sure since i don't you know i feel like i don't have the legal expertise whether you'd be bringing a uh a civil complaint or a criminal complaint. Uh, it would. It could be done on either side, Mike. But generally, it's done on the civil side, either in probate court or the state's equivalent of a probate court, or in guardianship, adult guardianship court, uh, to bring an action to to get approval from a judge to revoke or or cancel the power of attorney, and then try to recover assets. The problem with trying to recover assets is frequently they've been spent and you can't get them back. Yeah, yeah. So I love that this is, uh, this is really being more proactive, you know, in setting up the document from the beginning. And I love too that it's also, you know, just about this idea of third-party accounting can reduce family, you know, family conflict. Yeah. And, and where there is family conflict, I... I started out fresh out of law school with the, oh, we can just litigate this and the judge will make a decision. But when you do that, you've got winners and losers and you drive deeper and deeper divisions between family members. Mm -hmm. So trying to sit down and talk about it. When I did powers of attorney and advanced healthcare directives where we were naming an agent, I'd make multiple copies and I'd advise my clients, it's your decision, but my recommendation is give a copy of this to every one of your, every family member, mm, generally mm-hmm. spouse, all of your children, your siblings. Right. So if they've got a question about, well, why did you name this person? While you can explain it, you can explain it. If they don't find out about it until you're in the hospital and you're too sick to defend the choice that you've made, it becomes this mystery and additional reason for family stress at a time when the family really doesn't need any more stress. Right. So I encourage people to be transparent and talk about up front why they picked the person they picked. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you do that by sharing the information and promoting transparency. Mm-hmm. And so I guess likewise, you would also recommend that once people have completed the durable general power of attorney, that they should also share copies of that with family members. Yeah. Because I hear that too, that sometimes um, I hear family members complaining that they can't get a copy of it. Right. Um, actually, they, sometimes or, the agent says they can't get a copy of it from their older parents. <laughs> yeah. Or they, or, they, or they don't even know that it exists. Uh, right. Yeah. My a few years ago, my mother was in the hospital and my sister was there and my sister calls me on the phone with the hospital wants to know if mom has a, an advanced health care directive, a durable power of attorney. Well, yeah, they're in the unlocked <laughs> safe behind the door in dad's bedroom. She was living with them and helping to provide in-home care and had been for a couple of years and didn't know the documents existed mm. and that they were easy to put her hands on and make copies of. Mm-hmm. I knew they existed. I had scans of them on my phone. I emailed them to her. Well, your family might have been counting on you. <laughs> and But why we didn't think you know, that the person who's living there and, mm-hmm. and, 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 and helping to provide care to keep mom and dad at home, why we didn't think to make sure that she had a copy of them, I, I don't know. So we can learn from that by encouraging other people to stop and think do the documents exist? Is the person who's most likely to be asked for them to have access to them? And where are they? How do we get them there? One issue that wasn't, you know, covered in your brief, but that that I think about is, and that comes up for me in my clinical work, is is defining uh, incapacity, how that's uh, defined and who determines it, and also the sort of possibility of temporary incapacity because. I did observe a case of someone who, an older person who had become quite delirious in the hospital and was incapacitated, and he actually had a professional uh, fiduciary who assumed oversight, but then he uh, improved quite a lot. And it wasn't clear to me that he hadn't recovered capacity, and I realized that these documents, you know, 
they didn't seem designed to consider that possibility. Yeah. Um, a standard durable power of attorney, unless it states otherwise on the face of it, is effective whether the person has capacity or doesn't have capacity. And that's a big misunderstanding. A lot of people think like, oh, you can only use this if I'm incapacitated. Not unless that's what the document says. A standard mm -hmm. durable power of attorney is the appointment of an agent. It's effective as soon as it's signed. If it's written in such a way that it only becomes effective in the event of incapacity, state law will generally define that. Most of the state laws that define it require two healthcare professionals to certify in writing that the person is unable to manage their affairs because of illness or injury. But you can also define it in the document. And occasionally I would write what, what I call the springing durable power of attorney, one that only became effective in the event of incapacity. And we would try to define in the document because we found it difficult at times to get healthcare professionals to issue this statement that my patient is unable to make and communicate informed and rational decisions. Uh, there were concerns about medical privacy or patient privacy or general practice physicians who said, gee, I don't really feel qualified to make that decision. I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a geriatrician. I'm not trained in that level of evaluation. Right. And they were uncomfortable with that professional judgment that they're putting their signature on. So we would try to define it in some other way. Uh, and the return of capacity is, is something that can happen because uh, you know, pain, medication, uh, certain illnesses can cause a person to have a diminishment of capacity. Uh, back in 2015, I had some spinal surgery. And there were two things I learned from, three things I learned from that on capacity. A, the pain medication impacts your capacity and your ability. Mm. Yes. The good news is the pain medication and the pain control that the hospital practiced was incredibly effective. I had very little time when I was uncomfortable. The bad news is they gave my phone back to me on the second day and I started sending text messages. Mm -hmm. And when I go back and read those, I can clearly tell you I didn't know what I was talking about. Right. Right. Uh, when the pain medication went away, the capacity came back. Right. But there was a period of a couple of weeks there where to keep me comfortable, they had me medicated to a level where, no, I couldn't manage my money, property, finances, make rational decisions. And But it would come back when the medication went away. And the same thing can happen with you know, substance abuse, mental health effective treatment and people regain a lot of the capacity that they had. And, and we, we see that in power of attorney law with, okay, when do we hand the authority back to the, when do we let the person start managing their own affairs? As soon as they understand the risks and benefits of the choices that they're making and thoroughly understand the choices they're making. Occasionally we'll see guardianships or conservatorships that are, created or that are where the judge where the court has appointed a guardian or conservator for someone who gets well and the person has a right to go back to the court and say i thank you for helping i've gotten better and i'd like my rights restored right right and that can be time consuming and mm -hmm. it can be expensive, but it certainly has a huge value to that person because they suddenly regain the ability to make decisions, manage their own mm -hmm. affairs, mm -hmm. take their life back. And that's that's actually an area that there's a lot of emerging work being done on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I certainly see it come up because uh, for older adults, delirium in the hospital is very common and can take weeks or months to to resolve. So, you know, I've been wondering if there'll be an issue brief to provide a little clarity on that because it often it seems like people treat it as such a uh, on or off thing capacity, whereas as you were pointing out, there is this, you know, temporal aspect that people can, can sometimes get better after, after a serious illness. Well, to come back to your suggestions for the durable 
general power of attorney. I wanted to ask you about one other situation that uh, comes up a fair bit and that I get asked about. And those are for those older adults who don't have any children or close family to serve as agents. What do you recommend for, for those people who, who still, I suppose, should have a durable general power of attorney? And they're actually the individuals that are at greatest risk if they get injured or sick of ending up in guardianship or conservatorship court if they don't have something in place. Mm -hmm. If you're surrounded by trusted family members, there are a lot of workarounds that families creatively come up with that may or may not entirely make the lawyers comfortable, but families make things work. Right. Uh, But if there's no immediate family or friends, and this happens because people outlive their family members or Mm -hmm. their distance or estrangement, if they have the financial ability to do so, they can hire professionals, attorneys, geriatric case managers, uh, healthcare case managers, uh, money management professionals to manage money, make, help manage healthcare decisions. If they don't have the, the, the resources to do that, then we start looking at local faith and community-based organizations and volunteers. So can you find a local volunteer to serve as your power of attorney? It's hard to do, but it's possible. There are some dedicated volunteers out there that take on that tremendous responsibility mm-hmm. of agreeing to serve as the decision maker for someone who doesn't have anyone else. In some states, uh, adult protective services are able to help out either in a formal manner as an agent on a power of attorney or an informal manner. Sometimes you have to go through the court appointment process for guardianship or conservatorship, which gives the agency then a formal accounting responsibility, reporting responsibility to the courts. And those are not perfect situations because sometimes that very dedicated public servant has too many people that they're trying to make decisions and to help. But if it's nobody or somebody who's going to do their professional best, it's certainly a viable option that's out there. And any thoughts on people asking friends to be their power of attorney? Again, it comes down to screening that agent. Are they trustworthy? Are they going to try to, are they going to be reliable? Are they going to be available? Certainly, we, I've seen situations where it was a neighbor or a long-term for our friend who served as the agent, and they certainly did the right thing. And, and there's also risks there. If we're, if we're looking at trying to reduce the risk there, we're going to look at the length of the, the nature of the relationship, the length of the relationship, and the characteristics of the person who's volunteering to serve as the agent. My own experience, uh, I, I have seen friends in this role, and it's wonderful that they do it. And I think some of them had no idea what they were getting into when it comes to uh, overseeing an older person's affairs, you know, somebody with dementia for five or seven years. Do we have any programs that kind of like coach people on doing that? <laughs> I don't know of anything, and it certainly would be uh, something that would be worthwhile developing. Yeah, because I was thinking that professionals often just already have some training and tools to manage that responsibility, but that when it's, you know, when it's more than paying their bills for a few months while they're getting better, right? And actually, that would be helpful to family, too, <laughs> come mm-hmm. to think of it. Um, yeah, and, and there, there are some resources that are out there. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau publishes a series of fiduciary guides for agents under powers of attorney, for trustees under trusts, for guardians and conservators, for persons managing veterans benefits that give a set of guidelines of what you need to do and how you should go about making decisions and choices. And those publications are available on the CFP, on the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau's website free of charge. Mm-hmm. And then I know I've seen guides to help people select a, an agent for healthcare power of attorney. Does the American Bar Association have a guide to selecting a, a general power of attorney uh, with examples of what that person might have to manage and do? You've asked me a question I don't know the answer to. Oh, well, we'll, <laughs> Sorry. we'll search and we'll try to find out. 
Okay. Um, I was just realizing that I've seen like guides that are healthcare specific, but I'm not sure that uh, I don't know that I've looked yet though. There's probably one um, somewhere because that question of selecting an agent, you know, I think to a certain extent it helps if people the the more people understand the kind of work their agent might have to do on their behalf, that that helps inform the question of who would be a good agent, you know, other than are they honest and ethical and hardworking and you know willing to Reliable. pay attention to what you wanted, right? And 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 available, I you know. And available. My, my parents named me as first choice for healthcare decisions and financial management. I can't imagine why. <laughs> At the time they did that, I was living 30 miles away, and then I moved 850 miles away. Oh, yeah. And 20 years later, when the documents were needed, I was living 850 miles away, and all of my siblings were living within 30 miles. Mm-hmm. And there were times when things needed to be done, and I just simply was not, I wasn't there. Right. Right, yeah. And it would have been, and the consideration of going back and redoing things or, or reexamining it, it might have been helpful for them to redo those documents late in life when I was living 850 miles away and my sister was living in the house and helping to provide care. But, you know, everything worked out. Right. Well, I think people often do think, you know, that there's, you know, one adult child who just seems to have the, the domain expertise. You're, I'm sure, that person for your family, right? I, um, well, that's what mom <laughs> and dad thought. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, David, thank you so much for all this information. This has just been really enlightening and helpful to me personally. And I'm sure the audience has learned a lot. In closing, do you have any last favorite resources or suggestions that you want to share with the audience so that they can build upon what we've learned today, which is the importance of not only having a durable general power of attorney, but drafting in some sensible precautions to make sure it works well for you. There are a lot of resources on the website of the American Bar Association Commission on Law and Aging, AmericanBar.org, and search for the Commission on Law and Aging. We'll post a link to it specifically, yeah. There's a large and growing group of resources of issue briefs and recorded trainings on the National Center on Law for Law and Elder Rights, the NCLER website that we contribute to and also other experts from around the country contribute to. Uh, and those are, are hugely valuable and available to anyone free of charge. Great. Well, we'll definitely post links to those. So David, thank you once again. Thank you. Have a nice afternoon. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in this episode, you can post it on the show notes page for the episode. I'll also be posting some links to some of the resources that I mentioned in the episode. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes and I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.